When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I it felt, felt I feel right. right. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clutter, where true, personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and can you believe it's almost 2024? I know. I know. Where does the time go? So, as we get ready to ring in the new year, we thought we'd listen to some of our favorite stories about new beginnings and fresh starts. Up first, Cindy Joe. Cindy Joe is an engineering physicist studying neutrinos, the tiny particles that might hold the answers to some of the universe's biggest mysteries. Her story first aired on our podcast in 2018 in an episode titled Loneliness, Stories About Finding Friends. Cindy's story is about that oh-so-relatable inhuman experience of not fitting in. I love this story. Here's Cindy. When I was just out of college, I had a pet snail. Um, This was when I was still living in Portland, Oregon. I had bought a box of strawberries from a fruit stand in a hurry, and I hadn't noticed until I got home that there was a little hitchhiker inside. So I decided to keep him. I named him Professor Snailworthy. (laughs) What I didn't realize until I had one was how much personality snails have. (laughs) Uh, He had favorite foods. Uh, He'd hide in his shell when his cage got too dirty, very fastidious. Um, He loved to sit in his water dish, and eventually he outgrew the strawberry box and a friend bought him a terrarium to live in, and he would crawl up to the lid and sort of stick there by suction, hanging upside down like a bat. Well, uh, needless to say, I absolutely doted on the little guy, and... um, Whenever I'd go on trips, I would get him a snail sitter. (laughs) Um, We would go on outings to the park. Um, Whenever uh, we'd go by bus, and um, sometimes I'd get kind of strange looks, but not that many because it was Portland, hey? Um, And uh, so we'd, we'd get off, you know, the bus at the park, and I would open the lid of his cage and let him out onto the grass to sort of taste the grasses of freedom and uh, feel the wind in his eye stalks. (laughs) And at some point, I would scoop him back in, and we would go home. Well, uh, Professor Snailworthy grew, and I think he thrived. Um, he, He grew from a size that I hadn't noticed in a strawberry box to maybe three to four inches long from nose to tail, with a shell the size of a key lime. 
And I came up, wow, right? <laughs> and I came up with this whole imaginary backstory in which maybe he would just not stop growing. He would just keep growing and growing and growing um, until one day he would get so big that he would break out of the backyard and go exploring. And maybe people would think that he was a monster rampaging the city, and they would get scared until I showed up. And he would remember that I had loved and taken care of him. <laughs> and he would let me take him home. So I even, I even like, sort of drew little draft sketches for a comic. So um, just remember that you heard it here first. And Hollywood, I'll be waiting to hear from you about movie options. Well, during this time, I moved from Portland to the Chicago suburbs. And of course, Professor Snailworthy went with me. Um, I'm kind of a rule follower, so I looked up the airline's policies on snail transport. <laughs> um, I, I don't know why, I couldn't find any. Um, but I didn't just want to you know, stuff them in my suitcase and uh, hope for the best. So I, I popped them in my water bottle and put plastic wrap over the top and poked little breathing holes. And I packed them in my backpack and we both boarded the plane to our new life. Um, I figured if anybody saw his silhouette on the x-ray and asked me any probing questions, I would say that I was a collector of seashells, um, but nobody asked me any questions. <laughs> so I'd moved out here to um, Fermilab to become a particle accelerator operator. Um, and the thing was, you know, so I was moving uh, across the country on my own um, um, from my college town, which I loved, across the country, to uh, a place where it snowed, and I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anything either. Um, this job is so unique that they had to train me from the ground up on the job, and that meant that I was surrounded by the world's experts, and I was asking them what felt like incredibly stupid questions. And I was um, sort of, the whole time I'm sort of battling to tamp down that part of my ego that needs to prove that I'm, I'm really smart too, so that I can actually be open to all the new things that I need to learn, which is basically every single part of every single machine. And the thing about the accelerators is they also operate 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So everybody works a rotating shift schedule. You know, days, evenings, weekends, um, holidays, um, all of it. So it's actually pretty tough to, you know, make outside friends. It's a pretty tough lifestyle, um, especially when, you know, you're, you're spending up to 60 hours a week at work. So at first, I thought I might bond with my fellow operators, but I didn't really fit in. And after a while, I started to feel invisible. I'd hear about what a good time everyone else was having at the activities that I hadn't actually been invited to. Or when I brought up wanting to participate in a project, I'd to be told they were already done. 
Thanks. Um, I'd bring up my ideas, but sometimes I'd feel completely overrun, like nobody was really listening to me at all. Even in some situations where I was the one who was supposed to be in charge. I didn't really think they were doing it on purpose exactly, but I felt forgotten. And to be honest, that isn't really a better feeling. There could sometimes be periods or four or five days in a row in which I would maybe have no real life contact with other human beings. And that was a really tough time. Well, I'd graduated um, into, unfortunately, the worst part of the recession. So I didn't really feel like I could just leave because of a small thing like feeling really unhappy. Um, lots of people were genuinely worse off. And besides, I was kind of worried that maybe it was my fault that people didn't like me because I wasn't likable. They didn't believe the things I said because I wasn't knowledgeable. And they didn't listen to me because I wasn't worth listening to. Well, there were a few things that kept me going in this period. Um, one was my personal stubbornness. And another was my fundamental belief in the value of what I was doing. I was so in love with physics. Um, I felt like I was in a unique position. I had access um, on the ground level to, I was on the ground level of big science. And, you know, I had a level of access that few people on the planet had. And that um, some of the great discoveries that of physics were due in small part to my training and experience and my knowledge. And that maybe humanity would know more about the vast universe around us because I was working hard and really devoted to my job. Late at night, when everything was running smoothly and there was sort of the humming and beeping and buzzing I felt a sense of peace and of the rightness of things. Whenever I adjusted the machines all shift and I got a 3% increase in output, I felt proud. Whenever there were big discoveries announced and somebody got the Nobel Prize, and that was partly because of contributions from experiments here at Fermilab, which worked because of the work that I and my coworkers were doing, I felt like it was almost as if maybe one millionth of that Nobel Prize was mine. This had been what I had been wanting to discover when I moved out here, if this was something that I could devote my life to. And the answer felt like, yes. In retrospect, what I had been looking for was some type of validation. I wanted somebody else to notice me and tell me that I was good enough. And the stakes had been built up so high that it became all I thought about. 
And if there's anything that scientists are good at, it is taking in data and drawing their own conclusions from it. And based upon the input I was getting, I had concluded that I must not belong there. But in my loneliest periods, there was one living, moving creature around. And as far as Professor Snailworthy was concerned, the sun rose and set on me and my mango scraps. And at some point, maybe with his help, I realized that my core beliefs that every single person mattered and had fundamental inherent value should maybe also apply to myself. That my different perspective was important, that my experiences were real and that my contributions were good. that I deserved no less um, gentle kindness and consideration than anyone else. And maybe I should treat myself like it. And that was a shift in mindset that helped pull me out of my funk. There's this concept in chemistry, um, the nucleation site. Um, conditions can be all ready for, a, uh, for solid crystals to form out of a liquid solution, but maybe nothing will happen, lots of times nothing will happen, until a seed crystal is introduced. And I've often thought that friendship works the same way, that lots of times it's not until you make one new friend that you, then you meet all their friends, and now, hey, you've got 20 new friends. Um, and that's what happened to me. Um, through that one friend, I started meeting other people outside of my bubble, and I started making a lot of new friends in my own right. Um, I still worked a lot of weird hours, still worked a lot of weird times, but I started to feel like somebody who mattered again, somebody that people would miss if she was gone. Well, one day, after we'd been together for about three years, um, I noticed that uh, the professor was being a little bit slow. I mean, he was, he was a snail, <laughs> but, you know, more than usual. Um, but, you know, I was, I was kind of busier now. Um, I'd started to get known around the department for being good at what I did, so that opened up all kinds of opportunities. I'd started to um, I was doing a lot of outreach, I was serving on committees, I was volunteering for everything I could. Um, so I didn't spend as much time with him anymore. You know, I'd, I'd change his water, I'd put in his food, but I didn't just sort of sit and, and watch him anymore. Um, we didn't spend as much quality time together. Then one day, I noticed that he'd been inside of his shell for a while, and he'd never really done that for so long before. So I started to worry that maybe something was seriously wrong. I sprayed him with water. I put in his favorite foods. I actually picked him up and put him in his water dish, but he barely moved. 
And eventually I had to accept that he was gone and he was never going to come out again. I miss my professor. <laughs> um, if there is such a thing, he was a good snail. His tenure may not have been long, but uh, he taught me a lot of things about patience, about life, about being um, picky about your choices, but happy with the life that you make. He taught me to look at things from a different perspective, even if that means that you have to hang upside down for a while. He taught me to feel the grass under my feet and the wind in my eye stalks. And he taught me that sometimes that it's possible for you to grow and to change, even if everyone else thinks that you are too small. He um, was the thing, he helped me make friends. Um, I, having a weird pet is a surprisingly great conversation starter. And he was the thing that I packed most carefully to take from my old life to my new. And then after a while, he taught me how to let go. Someday, maybe, I will again be the girl with the weird pet, but I will never get over being grateful that I'd bought that particular box of strawberries, and I will never forget my first snail. Thank you. That was Cindy. To learn more about her, visit our website, storyclutter.org. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make story clutter happen, but if standing alone, in the spotlight, in front of an audience doesn't speak to you, maybe becoming a story clutter donor might be more your speed. Story clutter donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story clutter is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please donate to the Story Collider at storyclutter.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Collider. Our next story is another favorite of ours from actress and storyteller Gail Thomas. It first aired on our podcast in 2017 in an episode titled Psychotropic Substances, Stories About Altered States. And if that title didn't give it away, this story is an absolute trip. If you haven't heard it before, you're in for a treat. Seriously, how can a story about taking mushrooms not be fun? Here's Gail. When my nurse practitioner asked me if I wanted to do a study for cancer survivors with anxiety and depression, I was offended. It had been two years. I got through the chemo, I got through the relationship breakup, I even got through the loss of my little dog, Rusty. I survived my cancer, a year later he didn't survive his. 
But I'd gotten through the post-traumatic stress syndrome. I didn't overreact at laundromats anymore. I could be flexible about where I folded my towels. In fact, cancer was good for my self-esteem. I learned something that a Midwestern girl doesn't necessarily know. I learned how to stand up for myself. My decisions were important. I stood up to doctors. I stood up to family members. I stood up to cab drivers. I stood up to that guy at the laundromat. Anybody who wasn't good for me was out. I got rid of all the toxic people, and there was no one left. <laughs> I was different now. I, I had changed into somebody that I didn't really know. My life was really exciting when I was making treatment decisions, chemo or radiation, life or death. Now that I was back with the regular people, it was like Starbucks or the local cafe. You know, soy milk or skim. It was dull and ordinary. I wanted to talk to people who had life or death situations. I, I felt separate. Like I had gone off to this far planet and then I came back and I didn't speak the language anymore. So, all right, I said to my nurse practitioner, tell me about this, this study. She ushered them into the room, Dr. Ross, who had, who's very straight, lays sort of crew, you know, short, clean cut haircut and a, and a tweed jacket and, and sort of a nerdy looking awkward fellow about mid thirties, accompanied by Gabby, who, whose hair was up in a bun and she wore a flowy skirt and they sat in front of me. And Dr. Ross explained that this study had been done um, previously at UCLA and John Hopkins and that I would only need to do one drug and then one placebo. And there would also be four months of free therapy now, I didn't really want any more therapy, but I do like a good deal. <laughs> so I said, all right, so tell me, what, what's the drug? Psilocybin. I was like, what? Magic mushrooms. Oh my God, Timothy Leary and like Ram Dass and all that stuff. Magic mushrooms. I, I'd never had the guts to do them myself. I knew other people who'd had, but I had I was I was sort of a straight-laced kid in college and in my 20s, and, and I already was kind of hyper and a little bit of an overthinker, so I was sure that I would be the person that would jump off the roof. <laughs> but this was an FDA study. My friend Joe says I'm the luckiest unlucky person he's ever met. I got cancer, but I get to do mushrooms legally with FDA approval. It's like winning the cancer lottery. Sign me up. I was patient number 13. We started the therapy and there was lots of forms to fill out. Gabby had, it was like rate one to five. Do you feel depressed? How are you eating? Have you gained weight? Do you ha are you happy? Do you have suicidal thoughts? The forms were, were, went on and on. But finally, it came the day for the dosing. I was so excited. They had asked me to bring items from home that, that were comforting for me. So I brought Rusty the dog's little squeaky duck and I brought some pictures and some, and some, they had flowers there for me and snacks. And we stood and I walked into the room and they had two chairs where the two doctors, Dr. Ross and Dr. Cresselia would sit and watch me on this fold out photon while I had my experience. I thought that might be kind of boring for them, but it was my day. So we got in a circle 
and we held hands and um, doctor, they had a chalice actually that they had this little pill that had been measured specially for me that I guess had all the synthetic mushroomy stuff inside it and, or, or not. And it had, it was in a little, uh, 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 a, a glass, little glass jar with my name on it, and they put it in a chalice. And we stood in a circle and held hands, and he asked me for my intention. So I'm like, I, peace, love, my intention is to do the drug. Give me the drug. <laughs> I took the drug, and I laid down. They had a pillow and a blanket, and I put it over me. And oh, they also had these, uh, they had gotten together, these NYU doctors, this whole team of people, and made this playlist of like crazy music that I could listen to the whole time, you know? And they had an eye mask for me to wear. My friends had all told me, you know, you should really go out into the woods. You need to be with nature if you're gonna do shrooms. You gotta do nature. I'm like, this is an FDA study. I'm pretty sure they're not, they're not gonna let me out of the room, okay? So, <laughs> so I laid down. And I laid down and I sat there and I, and I didn't feel anything. And I was like, oh damn, this is the placebo. And then about 30 minutes in, there was this rush of information into my head. It was just all coming at the same time. It was like every philosophy class, every yoga class, every deep thought that I'd ever heard of or I thought it had heard in my whole life was all coming in at the same time. It was a lot of information. There were there weren't there weren't really like dancing like lampshades like I thought there would be. It was more like little sketches and stuff. I saw I saw two paper mache colorful cow heads going across the screen, and I saw. A, 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 a cat that was chewing on my bicycle. I don't know what that meant, but it was a lot of information. I, I, I lifted the, the, I clutched onto my little dog's rusty toy and I, I lift, opened up my eye mask to look at Dr. Ross and he's sitting there and he's like, trust and let go, T-L-O, trust and let go. So I put the eye mask back on. And it just kept coming, all the information. And then I started, then I suddenly saw this, this beautiful field, like a little house on the prairie. And it was this gorgeous open field with a little house in the back. And there was this lady standing in the middle of the field. And she looked so happy and so healthy. And I thought maybe she was me or somebody I admire greatly. And then I saw all these, these I saw a, a table. I saw, I suddenly was over this table. And it was sort of like a round, this round table, like a pie chart. And there were these little sections that were divided out of the table. And in one of the sections, I looked at it, I looked down on top of it, and it was cancer at the table. And I was like, oh my God, cancer's at the table. And I looked, and there was more, and then my family was at the table. They were all like sitting around. And I thought about how I judged them, because they hadn't said the right thing when I had cancer. My brother wanted me to do tons of treatment, and my sister didn't want to do research, and my mom came for the surgery, but she wouldn't help me out with anything. I ended up waiting on her. But then I realized, you know what? They, they tried their best. They meant well. They love me. They're actually there for me. And then I started to see, see more things. And I thought about how I was an artist and I used to paint and I used to draw and I, I don't do that anymore. And I thought about how I went on stage and I used to perform and I really liked that, but I didn't do it anymore. And I wanted to participate because I didn't need to be isolated because we're all connected and that didn't make any sense. You have to participate because it doesn't matter if you're like old or young or sick or, or healthy, that you're all together because we're all connected. And so, you know, death has a purpose because the purpose of death is to tell you that you should live. You should really have a good time because you're not dead. You should just have fun. You're alive, right? You know? And so it just kept going. And then the IRS was at the table. I looked at the table and the IRS was there. Because <laughs> it was just after tax time. And I was really annoyed because I was like, I don't want the IRS in this trip. It's supposed to be a spiritual journey. And then I realized the IRS is at the table because everything's connected. Death and life and my family and cancer. And the IRS
virus, they all belong to the table together because we're all connected. And eventually it sort of, the trip sort of faded out and I took off my eye mask and I looked at the doctors and they asked me some more questions and they had me fill out some more forms and I wrote everything down, which is why I remember it. And uh, my friend picked me up and they gave me some flowers and I went home in the cab. And I remember being in the cab driving home and we, we passed these two women sitting at a cafe, an outdoor cafe. And I was like, look at them. They're friends. They're talking. They're really happy. They're friends. They like to be together. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> I had the, the great privilege of being patient number 13 out of 29. The results of the study, I guess they call it a paper, was published this past December in the uh, Journal of Psychopharmacology. The name of the study, the paper was Rapid and Sustained Symptom Reduction Following Psilocybin Treatment for Anxiety and Depression in, pans in Patients with Life-Threatening Cancer, a Randomized Controlled Trial. <laughs> yeah, it's long, too. Um, it was very successful. In over 80% of us, they, they noted a rapid and immediate decrease in stress that lasted at least six months. That was five years ago, and uh, I have changed. Things happen. And, you know, the things that happen are not actually good or they're bad. They're just things that happen. I don't have a perfect life now. I don't have the perfect job or a relationship, but things happen. One of the things that happened is I was cast in a commercial playing the, um, the supportive sister of a cancer survivor. And in one of the, the times we were, we were shooting everything, I walked by the monitor and I noticed the camera was focused above and looking down on our family's table where we would all sit together and support each other. We are all connected. Someone made this building. They built this building. Somebody put all the buildings all over New York City, and they made the subway, and they made the streets, and they made the beer, and they made your shirt, and they made my dress. Sometimes I feel lonely, but I know that I'm not alone, and I do not feel separate anymore. Thank you. Gail Thomas, my friends, told you her story was great. If you'd like to learn more about her or hear some of her other stories on our podcast, visit our website, storyclatter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Collider, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclutter.org to become a financial supporter. Or if you want to come to one of our shows or want to start your own Story Collider show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website too. The Story Collider is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Aaron Barker, Kelly Vinyl, Tracy Rowland, and Skylar Bayer. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Brinson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and I hope you all have a happy new year. Next year, I'll be back with stories that explore the big questions of life and death. 
because the new year is the perfect time to reflect on the meaning of life and our relationships with death. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. 